I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. So recently I was reading a sutta out of the Anguttara Nikaya. And this one is the Bharada Sutta. And this is one of the, the ones that I find interesting because it's one of the examples of, of the, the Buddha giving a talk to um, like a, a non-human being. You know, Bharada is... Uh, is an uh, asura king you know the the asura are like um sometimes translated as as like titans or demigods or or even demons and in india they're believed to be spirits that live in in opposition to the uh to the devas to the gods and so there are various ways that they work out in in various religions and philosophies in india but in, in buddhism you know asuras are just like human beings in that some are good, some are bad, and some are, are more neutral. But in any case, just like the devas would come to the Buddha and ask for, for guidance or teachings or just conversation, the asuras would do the same, including the asura kings. And so in this sutta, Bharada comes to the Buddha, and it's actually the, the Buddha that at first has, has a question Yes, Paharada, if the uh, the asuras enjoy the ocean, enjoy the the sea, and uh, Paharada answers, "Oh yeah, of course. You know, the asuras love the sea. The sea, the ocean is wonderful." And Paharada goes on to great length in all the various ways that the ocean is is wonderful, a delight, a source of joy. <clears throat> and then Paharada turns to the to the Buddha and asks. A similar question, but instead about the the Dhamma, about the Vinaya, you know, is that a source of joy for the religious community? And you know, as it turns out, the Buddha says, "Oh, actually, it's it's much like the things you said about about the ocean, about the sea." And the Buddha then goes on explaining the the eight ways that the Dhamma and the Vinaya is a source of joy for the religious community. And there are two examples that I, I especially like, and one is quite popular. You know, for those of us who've been studying Buddhism for a while, we might be familiar with the example uh, given that like the Dhamma is like the ocean, where the ocean has the singular taste, that of salt. You know, the Dhamma has a singular taste, and that is of release, of freedom, of extinguishment, of Nibbana. And there's also another example that follows right after that, where the Buddha says that, you know, just like the, the ocean is filled with, with treasures, you know, he gives an example of like all the various precious and semi-precious stones, pearls, shells, all sorts of things that might come from the sea that are quite beautiful to us, those that we give uh, value to are in the ocean. In the same way, the Dhamma has its treasures. Specifically, the Buddha talks about um, what are sometimes called the, the wings to awakening. There are 37 qualities or 37 
traits that we're practicing and, and developing, you know, skills we're developing in the path as, as Buddhists, beginning with, you know, the four establishings of mindfulness down to the Eightfold Path. And I really like that example of, of thinking of those things as treasures. You know, I think about, you know, how popular mindfulness is now and how it becomes this big thing that's, that's passed around in, in kind of a cheap way. But, you know, what if we were to think about mindfulness and establishing mindfulness as a treasure and this eightfold path that we're developing, you know, as a treasure, as something of great value, as a, as a source of, of wealth. And I like thinking of, of those things as, as wealth because they prove to be the kind of wealth that actually matters, the kind of, of wealth that has true staying power for, for those of us developing this path within us. Because unlike the kind of wealth that exists out in the, in the regular world, the kind of mundane world, you know, the wealth that kind of comes and goes and seems to go to some people and not others, and, you know, there are those lacking and those that seem to have perhaps too much and so on. The wealth that we get to, to, to develop and cultivate as Buddhists is wealth that is dependent on us and our own efforts and stays with us and can't be taken away by anyone else, can't be given by anyone else either. That, you know, the, the things we're developing in the Eightfold Path and the things that we develop in terms of mindfulness and effort, in terms of skill and faculties and strengths and so on, are all things that, that we are doing, things that we can rely on. And they're wealth in, in the truest sense and that they are resources for us that are there in our, our time of need. Uh, absolutely when when we, we need them most. And I was thinking about that especially uh, these days in terms of the establishings of mindfulness. You know, uh, being mindful, uh, having mindfulness immersed in the body, having mindfulness immersed in feeling, mindfulness immersed in the mind, and mindfulness immersed in mental objects or dhammas. That was especially uh, useful for me recently because, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago, I, I ended up uh, contracting COVID and I got quite sick. And this happened at a bit of an inopportune time in, in my life. You know, I, I had just uh, graduated with my Master of Divinity. And so I had been off celebrating and, you know, perhaps I, I had started to see more people and things like that. And, you know, who, who's to say exactly how I got it? Because, you know, uh, it, it can exist in the body for quite a while before it, it presents itself with symptoms. And, you know, I have to say that it was, it was actually quite tough for me because I, I had never been sick like this before in my life. And that way, I suppose I've been quite lucky. But also, the way this virus worked through my body was very different from what I, I had ever experienced before. You know, like anyone else in the world, you know, I've, I've had a, you know, cold or, or the flu before. And, you know, I've had my exposure to like having fevers and, and chills and, and body aches. And I, and I had all of that, you know. It, initially, the symptoms seemed to be very, very much like a cold, very much like, like a flu. You know, I had my fever and I was sitting on the couch and shivering and aching and getting hot as usual. And I even had, uh, you know, some of the other symptoms of COVID that show, you know, a little later or, or quite suddenly or however it works out. I, I lost my sense of smell and taste, which was strange, you know. 
Usually when someone has a cold or a flu, it's kind of a temporary thing and mostly because the, the nose is stuffy. But this was an absolute complete loss of smell and taste. It was very strange. But one of the symptoms of, of COVID that I, I hadn't experienced with any other kind of, of virus or any kind of sickness before was uh, the shortness of, of breath. Now that's something that I ended up having quite strongly for a period of maybe three, four days. It's hard to keep track because all the days started blurring together. Now that shortness of breath ended up feeling like something uh, quite quite different, quite strange, uh, because it wasn't due to a, to a stuffy nose, it felt like. You know, the, the lungs themselves, I, I would try to take a full breath and it felt very constricted and tight in my lungs. And uh, I would try to breathe through my mouth and take big gulps of air and it, it wouldn't quite work. And it got so bad that during that three to four day period, I was unable to, to sleep because every time I tried to sleep, it felt like I was drowning. So one night in particular, I got out of uh, bed because there was really no use in staying in bed. Came out to the living room in my, in my home, sat down, and tried to meditate. And in the midst of that meditation, I was continuing to have that feeling of, of drowning, of, of suffocating. And I began to worry, like, ooh, how, how serious is this, is this going to be for me? Now, I don't want to, to make anyone think that I was in, in any danger. I, I was the whole time checking on my, my blood oxygen level. And the healthy range of blood oxygen is anywhere from 95 to, a, to 100. And it's only if it starts going lower than that, then it's time to become concerned. And during this whole period, as I was continuing to check my blood oxygen, it you know, never dipped below 96. And most of the time it was between 98 and 100. So having that evidence, I knew that my body was getting the oxygen it required. But essentially, this virus, the way it was attacking me, I ended up feeling as if essentially I were being waterboarded. You know, I was having the sensation of drowning without actually drowning. And so when I was trying to, to meditate, I had to make use of skillful mindfulness to really, really uh, meditate in a, in a special way. Those of you who've known me for a while know that my object of meditation is the breath. And throughout my whole life, breathing has been pretty easy. I've never been someone with, with asthma. I haven't had any breathing issues. I typically don't get sick in a way that affects my breathing. And so here I was with this acute shortness of breath, this sensation that I, I could not fully breathe. And yet, my body was getting the oxygen it needed. And I needed to remind myself of that. And so that's what I mean about having to apply mindfulness in a particular way. We often assume these days that, that mindfulness is, is simply uh, awareness, just being aware of things as they are. And, you know, I got to tell you that if, if that were my approach to mindfulness, I would be aware, just even more acutely aware of what I already was aware of, which was the sensation of drowning, the sensation of suffering, this feeling of, of suffocating. And so I couldn't approach my meditation, my mindfulness of breathing, as simply being aware. 
And, lucky enough, the way the Buddha would teach uh, mindfulness, he did not teach it as simply bare awareness. In fact, when the Buddha would talk about mindfulness, he always talked about it in terms of three qualities, one of them being mindfulness. He would always talk about it in terms of ardency, alertness, and mindfulness. Mindfulness itself, not simply being aware, because that would fall under being alert, but rather to keep something in mind, to keep things in mind, including the teachings, including the Dhamma. So that meant that as I sat there that night, as I felt like I was suffocating, I had to apply ardency and alertness and mindfulness. I was ardent in the sense that I was actually bringing real determination to the meditation. I was sitting there with, with real effort to develop good qualities. I was there sitting with real determination to keep my mind on the breath, despite the breath being very difficult. I also had to apply alertness in realizing that even though the lungs themselves were, were having this sensation of, of suffocation, the sensation of drowning, the body itself was still getting all the oxygen it required. This kind of alertness was important because in the traditions I've studied, when we practice mindfulness of breathing, it's not simply the, the sensation of the breath as it comes through the nose or the lift and, and fall of, of the diaphragm, but learning to feel the sensation of breathing, the energy of the breath throughout the entire body. Some people describe it as like a humming sensation, a vibrating sensation. Uh, for me, it tends to be a, a sense of vitality, a sense that every cell in my body is continuing to breathe. This process of, of bringing in oxygen and feeding on that oxygen and expelling carbon dioxide and feeling that energy travel through the whole body. And it is a sense of feeling alive. And so that meant that my alertness couldn't rest simply on my nose or on my lungs, or on my diaphragm. But I had to expand that awareness to include the whole body, to feel the breath all the way down to my toes and my fingertips, to reside in my body and feel the breath as it traveled through. And so that became uh, a special way that I was applying ardency, alertness, and mindfulness. Beyond that, we can think of these establishings of mindfulness that the Buddha considers to be a treasure, something that is of real worth and value. It meant that as I was meditating, I was not only meditating on the sensation of breath, but I was meditating immersed in the body itself, feeling everything from the top of my head down to my toes. And I was also immersed in the feeling tones of my meditation. That meant that I was trying to be aware of the feeling of pleasure, the feeling of dissatisfaction, the neutral feelings uh, in the body, you know, pleasure, pain, and neither pleasure nor pain as it existed in the body. And I got to tell you, when I started applying it this way, it was very fascinating to watch the way this was traveling through my body because we might assume that because I had this feeling that night, this feeling of suffocation, that that was the only feeling I was having. But that turned out to not be true as I looked at my body, as I looked at this, the feelings traveling through my body, that there were places that were at ease, that were peaceful, that even felt pleasurable. 
and I was able to bring my attention to those places, to reside in those places, and come to a fuller awareness of the way I was feeling, and to nurture that, to not simply be aware that there were places in my body that were pleasurable, but to actually use that as a place to to rest, as a place to uh, find nourishment in, so that I was not suffering so acutely as I sat there that night. Beyond that, I was also aware of what was going on in my mind. Because having not been through something like this before, to not have this uh, acute sensation of shortness of breath, I sat there with a lot of feelings emerging in the mind. I could feel the, the panic there as I tried, as I struggled to breathe. I could feel the sensations and the thoughts that accompanied them, the feelings that accompanied them. The thoughts of, of worry, of whether or not I would get better, of whether or not this moment in my life would end. But I could also see the way my mind responded to my ability to shift over to the pleasant sensations in the body and my ability to reside and rest on those points as they existed. And I could then at that point find areas in my mind where I was able to Re, like rely on that sense of, of peace, that sense of, of rapture, that sense of bliss, and that sense of calm. One of the reasons why we, we meditate is to have a calm center, to have that calm center that can exist for us as we go through something very difficult, as we struggle for, through something very dangerous and scary, even if it's just the perception, the feeling of something scary, even though we might still be quite okay. Because as I said, I'd been continuing to check on my, my blood oxygen, and I was breathing. I simply was lacking the sensation. Now, I gotta be honest, the situation wasn't helped much by uh, the lack of, of sense of smell and the way that my nerves had been attacked. My face also felt really numb, so like I couldn't even feel air as it moved through my nose or my mouth. And to top it off, my my wife had put a simmering pot on to help us with the, the humidity in the apartment to try to open up our sinuses. What that had done, though, was created an outside temperature and kind of sensation that, it, that just seemed to match the body itself. So it actually, for me, made me feel even less like I was breathing. <laughs> so it was a funny thing to sit as a meditator that, that meditates on the breath and to not only have the feeling of shortness of breath, but even when breathing, to feel as if there was no breath. So again, to reiterate, that's why it was so important to sit immersed in the body, to sit immersed in feeling, to sit immersed in the mind, because I could see more clearly what was going on and utilize what was happening and make it useful, make it skillful, so that I could have that calm center that I was re relying on existing in. Now, that night eventually did pass, but it didn't pass with, with, with any sleep. Even though I, I was able to, to utilize mindfulness in terms of ardency and alertness and mindfulness itself, and I was was able to re rely on the four establishings of, of being immersed in the body and feeling, the mind, mental objects. 
that doesn't mean that my symptoms disappeared. I didn't miraculously get better that night, and I still wasn't able to sleep that night. But I was able to do something that allowed me to rest that night, that allowed me to get through that night, and then eventually the sun did rise, and eventually my wife woke up to keep me company. She was also sick with COVID, but at least we were sick together. And as I, as I went through that, and as I utilized that, these establishings of mindfulness, I could really see how they, they are treasures. They are a treasure, a kind of, of wealth, a kind of, of resource that I was able to use. Now, I couldn't avoid sickness because sickness is inevitable, simply a matter of time. But I also wasn't powerless in the face of my, of my sickness either, in the face of, of this feeling, this sensation, as my body was being attacked by a virus. Now, I, I think about how many people have had the same virus within the last couple of years. And, and I think about all the various ways that people suffer with old age and sickness and death. And so I, I can only think that there must be some way in which this is relatable to, to others today as well. Whether it is something that you felt in the past or something that you might feel now in the present or something that might happen for you in the future and certainly it will in the future there might be some good in sharing this experience that I had some way that it might be applicable to you and at the very least, some way of, of helping or showing, you know, being a modeling or exampling. There's so many ways I could try to say the same thing. The fact that these, these things that we develop aren't simply just fanciful philosophies or, or just a spiritual way of, of thinking, but, but have real-world application. A real way of, of minimizing our suffering in this very moment, even as we try to develop ourselves towards enlightenment, towards, towards liberation, towards Nibbana. You know, that when we actually do put these things into practice, as we face life's challenges, we end up finding what the Buddha called a pleasant abiding here and now. And so by putting that into practice, I, I was able that night and the nights that followed until I started to improve to have a measure of a pleasant abiding in the present moment, despite all the things that I was feeling, despite the ways I was hurting. And of course, I'm using mindfulness as an example, but it, it's true of, of the entirety of the path to think of them in terms of, of being treasures, in terms of being wealth. You know, even as we look at the Eightfold Path, we could see how the, the views that we hold as Buddhists can be treasures, can be wealth. We can think of, 
the resolves that we have, the determinations we have as we approach the path. We can think of the way we speak and the way we act, our very livelihood. And then, of course, we can think about the ways we, we meditate, the way we, we cultivate mentally, the way we develop, practice bhavana. You know, these things that we develop inside ourselves. You know, as we approach even the, the Brahma Viharas, looking at, you know, uh, goodwill and compassion and, you know, empathetic joy and equanimity, all of these things are treasures that we have buried inside us. You know, when we think about a treasure, a treasure on its own has no value. You know, if we think about some kind of pirate's treasure, you know, existing in some chest somewhere, if it's off buried in the sand or deep in a cave or at the bottom of the ocean, it, it serves no purpose. It has no value. The value is in uncovering it and discovering it and bringing it up out to the surface and utilizing it, putting it to use. So all these things that, that we develop, all these things that we cultivate within ourselves, exist in ourselves as potentials, as possibilities. And when we actually put them to use, when we bring them up to the surface and, and bring them out and extend them outward, God, what, what treasure we're sharing with others, what treasure and wealth we're sharing and using for ourselves. And we can see how this path we're developing is for our benefit, but also the benefit of others. So my example of this very dark night that I went through was one where I was able to uncover some measure of treasure. Maybe a couple gold coins, maybe a pearl, I don't know. But something worth, worth sharing. And maybe in the sharing it becomes something that motivates and inspires you to look within yourselves and see what treasures might exist there. What wealth might be inside you. What resources exist within that can see you through the, the ups and downs of life, the uncertainty of it all? When we go through something really scary, you know, and mileage may vary for all of us, but for me, this was scary. What gets us through? So I'm grateful to this path that I'm on, this path that I'm developing, that allowed me to get through it that allows me to get through all the things that my life has been. And again, mileage may vary. You might look at my life and see it as pretty cozy, and maybe. But each one of us is trying just to get through, to get through all the things that the Buddha said that life is, this continuous wandering on that is samsara. You know, it's not just old age, sickness, and death. Those are just the ones we, we focus on, but it's the very inconstancy of, of life itself as, as a source of happiness that is reliable. You know, if we're too outwardly focused or outwardly focused at all, really, we, we end up finding source of, sources of happiness that don't last, that aren't reliable. So I was, at, on that night, able to find something I could rely on, which wasn't the medication I was taking, although that did help. And it wasn't, uh, you know, reading articles on WebMD or anything else online. <laughs> that didn't really help either. Uh, and, you know, I, I could have read more suttas and, and done a lot of other things in terms of study. And that is always helpful. But what was most helpful was actually putting it all into practice. 
putting these treasures to use, these resources to use. And I find as time goes on and I continue developing this path that that's when it becomes really fruitful. That's when I, I see the benefit of this path is putting it into practice. And again, I've been using mindfulness as an, as an example, but this goes for every part of the practice. You know, for us in the West, we, we might also need to, to look at the, the precepts as a kind of treasure, a kind of resource, a kind of wealth that when applied, when really put into practice, ends up being a gift that we give ourselves and a gift we give others. And so I, I could say I could say more, but I think I'd just be re- reiterating re- reiterating the same points. Uh, in either case, I, I do hope that what I shared today acts uh, or is uh, a motivation, an encouragement to look within and see what resources you have developed or exist as a potential that you can continue to develop. Something that really is useful, which really is reliable, which really does lead to a measure of calm, of peace and happiness, even right now as we continue on the path. Thank you so much for listening.